Well, you can have a seat. That is an incredible truth that we sing about, that God does love us, and he pours his love out. He lavishes his love just like an ocean, right? If grace is an ocean, we're all just sinking in it. And that's an incredible truth to be reminded of today. It's so good to be with you as we praise God together. My name's Mike, one of the pastors on the team. Please grab your notes out of your handout. And you will see that we're starting a new series, and it's a, a kind of a callback. It's called Blessing My City, and it's sort of the focus that we are in this two-year period. God kind of brought us to this about a year and a half ago, and so we are charging our way through it. So to, it's going to be like a little bit of a re-challenging, a reorienting ourselves to what does it look like for us to, to follow what it is that God calls us to. Now, I want to start with a passage of Scripture, and it's foundational for this whole series. It's foundational for this focus, and it's from Jeremiah. And the people of Israel at this time, they were confused. They're confused because they love Israel, and they love Jerusalem, and God is the God of Israel, and God is the God of Jerusalem. It's the city of God on Mount Zion there, and, and now they have been captured. They have been, uh, their, their land has been invaded by the Babylonians. The Israelites are being taken off into captivity, into Babylon. And they're confused about what they should be doing. What, what, what is the posture that our hearts should be in? Because we don't want to be in Babylon. We want to be back in Jerusalem. We, we don't want to be in the far country. We want to be back in Israel. And so that's what they're thinking and... At the same time, there were these false prophets, and they were telling the Israelites, hey, don't even unpack your bags. God's going to bring you home right away. Don't settle down. Don't make yourself comfortable. God's going to bring you back to Israel. And Jeremiah, this tearful prophet of the Lord, God speaks through him to the people of Israel. And he brings a really interesting message. And so I, I want to start today, this whole series, I want to start with this. It's in chapter 29, verse 6 and 7. God, through Jeremiah, says, marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Now, just that line alone tells you something. God has a generational perspective, doesn't he? He doesn't say marry and then have kids and then while they're still one year old, find a spouse for them. Like, he, no, no, wait till they grow up and then, and then help them find spouses and then uh, see that they would have grandchildren as well. It's intergenerational. And then he says, multiply, do not dwindle away. And look at this, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Look, God says, you might not like the city that I'm sending you to. You might not like how many days out of the year it's in permacloud. You might not like how your feet will become webbed and moss will grow everywhere, including on your roof and on your car. And if you stand still long enough on your forehead, you might not like how far it is from the beach. You might not like how your tan skin will become white and how your white teeth because of the coffee will become tan. Actually, God said all that to me when he brought me to Seattle. Um, 
What he said to the Israelites was more like, you might not like the heat, even though it's a dry heat. You might not like the way, you won't like the way they worship idols instead of the one true God. You might not even like the hanging gardens Babylon has. But God says, regardless of your preferences, I want you to work for the prosperity of the city that I'm sending you into. In other words, they were only concerned about themselves. They were only concerned about, I want to go back. This is what I want. When, God, are you going to do this for me? And God said, I'm going to do something for Babylon through you. I am actually going to use you to bring the welfare of the city up. I I want you to actually be a part of the prosperity of the city that I'm sending you into. And it's a complete reversal of their mentality. God says, I want your city to thrive, and you are going to thrive when it thrives. I want you to put down roots and enjoy your children and grandchildren and work for the peace and prosperity of the city that you're sojourning in. Labor on its behalf, and most importantly, pray. Pray for its welfare because your welfare and its welfare are tightly connected. And friends, this is foundational. This passage and this heart of God, this is foundational for what we are going after as a church. And so what I want to do at the beginning of the series, beginning of this message today, let's do exactly what God has challenged the Israelites to do. Let's begin with prayer. So if you just join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, right now what we want to do is we want to pray for our cities that you have sent us into. And so right now, Jesus, we're, th- we're just thinking about our city. We're thinking about Redmond. We're thinking about Kirkland or Juanita. We're thinking about Woodenville, Bothell. We're thinking about uh, Renton or Kent. We're thinking about Kenmore. We- All of the cities that we live in, Lord, we lift them to you now. We pray for the prosperity and the welfare of our cities. And we pray specifically that you would use our lives to bring peace and prosperity to the cities we live in. We pray for our neighborhoods right now. We pray for our communities. We pray for our workplaces. We pray for our classrooms. We lift all of this up to you, Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I want you to understand that this passage in Jeremiah 29, it's not an isolated passage of a mission that God has just for his people of Israel in that time. This heart that God reveals It is a mission for his people again and again and again, and it's found all throughout Scripture. So what I want to do today is I want to take a look at one passage. It's Isaiah 58. If you have your Bibles, welcome to open them to Isaiah chapter 58. If if you don't have your Bible with you, the notes are provided. It'll be on the screen as well. But I want you to see that God is speaking through his prophet Isaiah, and he's revealing a very similar heart that he revealed through Jeremiah. So let's just jump in. We'll start in verse 1. God says, tell my people Israel of their sins. Isn't that an encouraging way to start a message? (laughs) Let's tell the people of their sins. And what I want you to understand is that these are the people of God. So these are God's people called by his name, followers of the one true God. And yet they've messed it up a bit. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at where they went wrong to make sure that we're not also going wrong in the same way, okay? So here we go. God says, they act so pious. 
They come to the temple every day. They seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. Now, if you look at that passage, you can see that the the actions of the Israelites were not what God was complaining against. He was not complaining against the way that they sought to be pious or to live with moral behaviors. He was not complaining that they went to the temple all the time, that they, that they were involved in learning from the Torah, right, the, the, the Old Testament Bible. They, he wasn't complaining about the behaviors that they were engaged in. He was complaining about the motive that was underneath the behaviors. So I want you to go through that passage, and I want you to circle the verbs. They act so pious. Right? They seem delighted. They're pretending they want to be near me. Friends, if you want to know what gets under God's skin, that's it. Acting, seeming, pretending. Right? That, that's really big, and it's really important for us to understand. If you're filling in the blanks, the first truth, God cares about the authenticity of our hearts, about the authenticity of what's going on on the inside. And maybe you're here, you're just checking this whole church thing out. You're, you know, you're just kind of opening the Bible for the first time. You're, you're kind of jumping in. If that's true, or, or maybe you've been around for a long time, wherever you are spiritually, I would just encourage you, don't, don't judge God harshly for being angry at these things. I want you to view it personally for a second. None of us like a two-faced hypocrite. None of us, none of us enjoy a person who's kind to us when we're face to face, but the moment we're gone, stabs us in the back. None of us want to be that person. So don't judge God harshly for letting this get under his skin. It gets under our skin, right? And I want you to understand this idea of pretense, this idea of pretending, Here's the deal. God is not angry with his people for not being perfect. Not at all. God is gracious. God is merciful. He's not angry at them that they're not perfect. He's angry at them for pretending that they are perfect. Now, I want you to understand, when you're pretending, you're engaged in a form of deception, and deceit is a form of lying, And the father of lies is not God. The father of lies is the enemy of God. So you can see how this pretense, this this hypocritical false piety, this really gets God angry. Why? Because it's all a part of the enemy of God's plan. It has nothing to do with the authentic thing that God wants to have happen in our hearts. So before I continue... Could you just do a little self-evaluation? How is your heart before God? See, the greatest thing about this relationship with Jesus is the moment you recognize, you know what I've been pretending? Just before Jesus, you just go, that's me. I've been doing that. I'm so sorry. I I don't want to be that person. God, you know I've stumbled here before. That's not what I want to be about. And you just confess and you just turn to Jesus and you receive his grace and mercy. That's what's so beautiful about this relationship with Jesus. 
What's not great is continuing on in your pretense. And that's what, what's happening here in Israel, okay? Isaiah 58, verse 2. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice it. So they're complaining to God that God's not answering more of their prayers. They say, we've been fasting. Fasting is skipping meals. It's sort of a spiritual practice that is designed to help us get closer to God. They say, we've been doing this spiritual form. We've been engaged in this religious practice, and you're not even giving us everything we want because of it. Yeah, exactly. Wah, wah, right? Like they're whining to God about this. Why, God? We are so diligent in this religious formula that makes us entitled to draw on you serving us like a great butler in the sky, and yet you're not serving us. We don't understand what's going on. And you see that this is a very misguided heart. It's not the heart that God wants. Okay, they say, why aren't you impressed with our spiritual, religious, religiosity? Here's God's answer. I'll tell you why I respond. This is God speaking. It's because you're fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourself with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? You know, when you look at that that verse right there that says, um, you humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind, I kind of think God's making fun of them right there. I mean, that almost sounds like a little line from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, like, like, oh, look at your little religious motions, you know? No, you're bowing and bowing and bowing. You remind me of prairie grass in a thunderstorm, right? It's adorbs. <laughs> Just useless. Doesn't do any good, okay? In fact, if, the, if you're filling in the blanks, the next one is religious form might make us feel better. But God desires something more tangible for our lives. These religious forms, these spiritual practices, they they might make us feel a little bit better in the moment, but there's something more substantive that God desires for us. And I want you to understand that, that... God's speaking to the people of Israel, but it's, but it's equally true and challenging for those of us who call ourselves by the name of Jesus and who seek with, with what we can to, to be living lives in the way of Jesus and trying to love like Jesus loved. And, and we see what Jesus says. Jesus says, look, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So Jesus recognizes that there's a a, a problem here between what we're doing, the religious practice, and the state of our heart. Jesus also says, look, a time is coming when people are going to worship in spirit and in truth. That means with all of who they are, with all of the authenticity, with all uh, of uh, the whole being as they come and they worship God. You know, Jesus is the one... In the Old Testament, there were over 600 laws. Jesus is the one who fulfilled all of them perfectly. 
And what Jesus did in his earthly ministry is he boiled all 600 plus laws, he boiled them all not down to 10 commandments, he boiled them all down to a single verb, love. He's all, and how can you love if your heart's not authentically engaged? See, Jesus had, there was a different focus here, and, and it was what's really going on on the inside. That's the substance that Jesus is looking for. That's what God wants our lives to be filled with. And if you look at that line in the passage where, where God's talking about all of the quarreling and the fighting that's going on, all of the backstabbing that's happening among his people, I want you to understand, that, that, that just, to me, makes total sense. Because I'm a dad, and I've got three children. And if you're a parent, and you have kiddos in your home, you know that when there's fighting and quarreling going on, it just makes everything really, really gross, right? I, I remember, this was several years ago. I can't even remember what the, what the occasion was. It was either my birthday, or it might have been Father's Day. But my wife had this idea that they'd, they were going to have a meal, and they were going to honor daddy in our home, right? It was a meal. So I come home, and I walk in the house, and this delicious aroma suddenly just envelops me. My wife, a phenomenal chef, right? Oh, God. Smells great, babe. I come in the dining room. The table is laid out perfectly. Everything's beautiful. The candles are lit. It looks like a Norman Rockwell painting. Everything was perfect except the children. The kids were going at it, hammer and tongs, right? I mean, they were just sparring, like cage fighting, like MMA style, only using their words. It, it was like a Quentin Tarantino film, Kill Bill 2. But instead of swords, it was their tongues that were slashing. The gore was everywhere. Right? We couldn't get them settled down. We sat at the table. They just kept going at it. Finally, you know, I, 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 I slammed my hand on the day. Hey, we've got to knock this off, you know. And you guys have never had an experience like that because you are, you know, you're Christians. Uh, but, <laughs> but in that moment, I was just so frustrated. And, and we were all then silent at the table. Everyone was miserable. And I thought, you know, when everyone's miserable... This meal doesn't honor daddy. <laughs> and that's what God's saying. Look at you guys. You're just stabbing one another. You're just fighting one another. All you're doing is, oh, it's all your fault. No, it's all your fault. And it really doesn't matter if it's like across the aisle. No, it's all their fault. No, it's all their fault. Or if it's in a marriage relationship, it's all her fault. No, it's all his fault. It doesn't matter what, what kind of a scenario you're talking about. God's saying, look, you're my kids. And when you're going at it, ripping one another to shreds, then I don't care how nice you look on Sunday morning. You got to learn to get this going. You got to learn to lay down your daggers and love one another, right? There's a substance that's deeper than the form. And God's saying, look, you've got the form down. But the only purpose for the spiritual form is to inform your heart. That's the only purpose for the religious form, the spiritual form, any spiritual discipline that we might embrace. The purpose of religious form is to inform our hearts. Let me be perfectly clear, Overlake. There is not a single spiritual discipline you do that is for God's behalf. 
He doesn't need you to do anything. He doesn't need you to fast. He doesn't need you to, to pray. He doesn't need you. Anything that you want to do, you know, your devotions, any, any spiritual form that you've built into your life, it's not for God. No, no, that's a gift for you. It's a gift for your heart to be drawn more closely to God. What is fasting? Fasting is a way that we would skip a meal so that we would actually be hungry for God. It's for us. Does this make sense? Can I get an amen for this? Can I just track with me? Like, this is one of those incredible truths we got to get our minds around. Okay, so what is the something more tangible that God is trying to get us to embrace? He answers that here in verse 6. He says, no, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. Remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. Do not hide from relatives who need your help. That, that one might be hard for me. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. You know, God says, instead of form, I want substance. And the substance that I want for you is tangible blessing. I want you to help a hurt. I want you to engage the systems to function better and where the systems are not functioning that you would get rid of old systems and build new systems that do function. And I want you to look at that passage and I want you to see that all of them are civic-minded. They're all challenges that, that we do in our cities because all of the things that God is mentioning, that's all available in our cities. And friends, I'm not talking about you being a politician, although uh, politics should and does have an opportunity to speak into some of those things that God is, is referencing. But I just want you to understand, you don't have to be an elected official to be engaged in those things. In your city, these things happen now. And so what God's saying is, look, in your city where there's a heavy burden, you engage to lighten loads. In your city where there's oppression, you engage to bring equality. In your city where there's inequity, you engage to bring opportunity. That, that you would stop tearing one another down, stop uh, vicious rumors, stop your gossip. They're the problem. No, they're the problem. No, friends, instead, help. Roll up your sleeves. I've been recently challenged by this incredible quote. And I offer to you, and I know you're going to think about this in the weeks to come. You can write this down. And the quote is this. You are not stuck in traffic. You are the traffic. All right? The, 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 what we do is we don't recognize that when we're sitting on the freeway and we're not moving at all, and we're like, oh, I hate this. Where are all these people going? Rah, rah, rah. You're a part of the problem. Right? You are the traffic. And, and, and it, this is like this in our systems. You know, we complain about our city, but guess what? You are your city. We complain about our country, but guess what? You are our country. Like, we are the solution or we are the problem. You're not stuck in traffic. You're not stuck in this system. You are the system unless 
You listen to what the Lord's saying and decide, you know what, I'm going to be a part of the solution. I'm going to be bringing help. I'm going to tangibly be blessing my city. Look, what God's saying is this. Don't complain about how the world's going to hell in a handbasket while you wear your sackcloth and put a little ash on your head and skip an afternoon snack and thinks that that puts you on the inside track with God. God is saying, look, a little less burlap and a little more love, please. And remember that God is talking to his people who are called by his name. So it's analogous to us who, who are, are, are trying to follow Jesus and are called by his name. Because Jesus is our leader, he's our master, he's the one who took off his outer robe and put a towel around his waist and washed a bunch of stinking feet and then said, as I have loved you, I want you to love others. I've set an example for you to follow. It's very analogous to where we are today because we follow the one who said, look, you're to do good deeds and let your good deeds shine in your community so that people see those good deeds and do what? Glorify God in heaven. See, it's very, very analogous for who we are and what it is that we're to go after. And so I wanna give you a couple of truths to write down. These are not in your notes, but these are very important for us to kind of mull over and process. The first is this. When you get blessy, you get messy. When you get blessy, you get messy. In other words, it's impossible to bless others without caring deeply. And when you care deeply, you're gonna have to get your hands dirty. And as you get your hands dirty, you're gonna invite a little chaos into your otherwise well-organized life. But that's exactly what God wants for us. That's exactly the kind of love that he's asking for us to embrace. Right, Jesus is the one who gave us the model. And the model that Jesus gave us is as you love, you pick up a cross. And so as, as we love one another, we're going to have to shoulder some things for brothers and sisters. We're going to have to invite a little bit of chaos. When you get blessy, you get messy. Right? Now, the flip side of this is also true. When you seek to bless, you get blessed. When you seek to bless others, you get blessed yourself. Remember the verse we started with from Jeremiah, which says, as your city prospers, you will prosper. And I know we could do thousands of testimonies of folks who thought, you know what, I'm going to show up and serve here, and you show up and serve here, and you're the one who ends up getting served. Or you say, I'm going to show up and I'm going to bless these people. And you show up and you bless these people, but you're the one who goes home blessed. Or you think, you know what? I'm going to engage my life in this reality because I want to bring salvation here. And you understand that now you experience salvation more than you ever thought you could. Right? When you bless others, you get the blessing of God. Friends, this is a truth all throughout Scripture. It's not only here. But it is true here, because I want you to see what it says in Isaiah 58, verse 8. Then, God says, and you can circle that word, then your salvation will come like the dawn. Your wounds will quickly heal. 
Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I'm here. He will quickly reply. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you're dry and restoring your strength. Friends, do you want these things? Because I do. I do. The thought of God's salvation dawning over the cascades like a clear summer morning, yeah, I want that. The thought of of my deep woundedness, my emotional, psychological uh, scars being healed, yeah, I, I want that. The idea of of, of being restored, replenished, of having guidance and protection. Yeah, I want that. In fact, not only do I want this, as I was doing some processing this week, my gut tells me that these are the deep yearnings of all hearts. And God wants to give that as a blessing. He wants to give that as a consequence for us who begin to serve others. So friends, we're right now in the middle of a two-year Blessing My City Focus. And uh, for some of you, this is kind of news, and so we want to catch everybody up to speed. Uh, There are many ways in which to engage this, but specifically, we want to tackle this from an individual perspective. The challenge is that each and every one of us would recognize that where you live and where you go to school, where you have your coffee, where you work, this is the parish that God has given you, not by accident. And that you are to view yourself as a parish pastor of sorts, that that you're to give care and guidance, that you're to bring love, God's expression of love into that parish. We're going to talk more about that next week and and very, very excited about some of the developments that God's bringing in that reality. And then there's a corporate way that we're going to approach this as well. So we've put all of this, uh, the corporate idea, and and really this was time before the Lord and just saying, God, what is it that you want us to accomplish as a church? We've put that together in a booklet. We made that available last year, but we've got more of them available. We'd love to put some in your hand today that you would grab that, kind of flip through it. And as you do, you'll see that one of the areas that we feel like God is calling us to go after is to be a voice for the voiceless. So let me just share with you about one ongoing victory that we have here at Overlake. We recognize that the most transient part of our society, and because of that, the most voiceless part in the church, is the 18 to 25-year-old demographic. They're the ones who are there for a semester and then they're gone. They're the ones who come in for an internship and then they're in another state. They're the ones who come in for a two-year program, but then they're, they're off on the other coast. Like they're, they're constantly moving in and out. And, and so in order for a church actually to invest in the college-age demographic, let me tell you what you don't do. You don't invest in the college-age demographic because you think that they're going to be the elders in your church someday. Now, they might be, that would be like miraculous, but the the reality is they're here today, gone tomorrow, so that's not your motive. You you don't invest in the college-age demographic because you think their parents are going to come to church um, because that never happens, okay? In fact, that's a reason for them not to come to your church if their parents are here, probably. Uh, The third reason that you don't invest in the college-age demographic is because you think they're going to tithe. They're not going to tithe. They might tithe. 
they might tithe, but you know, that's not the, the, the motive. The motive of investing in the college-age demographic is because Jesus loves the college-age demographic. Jesus loves every single 18 to 25-year-old in this entire region, and nobody is investing in them. Nobody's specifically focused on them. No one's giving them a voice. And so we felt God saying, it's time for you, Overlake, to start doing that. And so about a year ago, we announced this at Overlake, but about a year ago, Pastor Jake and Pastor Rory, Pastor Kara, many volunteers and interns, they, they came together and we started a young adult service at Overlake. It meets on Sunday night, 7 o'clock. And if you're not familiar with that and you are in that 18 to 25-year-old demographic, please come. And if you've got you know, sons or daughters, you've got nephews, nieces, please invite any friends you have that are in that demographic. Just an incredible, dynamic expression Folks connected to Jesus, very, very vibrant spiritual reality there. Um, in fact, there are over 80% of our young adults that are connected. They're also in life groups. So they take spiritual growth more seriously than most of you. They're kicking your butts, really. I mean, like, I just, sorry to say that. So I just want you to know that all kinds of great victory happening in our young adult service. And what I want you to do is I want you to hear one of their stories this morning. My friend, Mariama, would you welcome Mariama as she comes to share? When people ask me, how did you get to be the person you are today? Oftentimes they're looking for a superficial answer. We fear too much information, so we hope for a surface level response, but my issue with that is I have a supernatural response. See, 2010 was the apocalypse of my soul. Jesus trying to save me from myself, the devil trying to save me from being saved, me trying to save myself from going insane. I used to think that the world was only meant to cause pain, that friendships were only meant to drain you, that mothers were only meant to break you, that mothers were only meant to hate you, that promises to do better were meant to be broken. So I found myself hurting learning that everything I thought I knew from childhood was fleeting, the ABC song transformed to a poem that went like this. Always believing Christ didn't ever forgive. God had inexcusably, justifiably, knowingly left me. No one puzzled, quite realizing suicidal tendencies, ugly values would execute youthful zeal. My life became a stone-cold prison cell. Windows covered with like paper mache, sure, it looked good on the outside, but the inside was a mess. Alcohol and cocaine coursing through my veins, weed making my mind go into a haze. Eyes glazed, heart dazed, feeling relaxed. Me self-medicating because I wouldn't be phased, slowly becoming numb to the pain caused by the hurtful words from the people who loved me me, looking for love in all the right places because society makes it seem like a caring boyfriend and the party scene makes everything better. So there I was in all the right places, but everything there led me to even more wrong situations where I compromised myself so that lust seemed like love, but love could be found only when I was drunk. So I partied nonstop so my heart would stop, stopping only to pretend like I could stop. 
So I took my pain, stored it in the back of my mind, and intentionally forgot the combination. But my life did not stop. So I started to think of the only way I knew I could make it all stop and stop for good. I heard the death man knock at my door, so I told that God man I'd give him one last shot. And with everything I had left, and I mean everything I had left, I prayed, and instantly I felt things start to change. I woke up the next morning still mad at the world, but what I didn't know was that Jesus was finally back and in control. For the first time in a long time, my mother, she apologized. You see, God is the great physician. He took my brokenness and bandaged it up. He took my warped view of love and sterilized it, proving that love is patient, kind, that love is honest, that it can be found when you're sober. He took my beaten, bruised relationship with my mom and started to sew it up, intertwining his love, grace, mercy, and salvation into every stitch. He took my unforgiving heart and with his sacrifice on the cross, switched it out for his own in order for me to forgive the person it was hardest to, me. So when people ask me how I got to be the person I am today, I can't give a superficial answer because the only way to describe how I am who I am today is with the love of Jesus Christ. And that entails a supernatural response. Thank you. So that is one ongoing victory. Our young adult service is rocking. There's just lives being transformed. Uh, Again, tonight at 7 o'clock, the young adult service meets again, and we have a special guest tonight. It's Steve Zakawani. He's a former Seattle sounder and uh, just a really dynamic uh, Jesus follower and communicator of the good news of Jesus' love. So again, if, if you... Uh, are in that demographic, or if you have a friend who's in that demographic, please um, join us tonight. Now, that's the one ongoing victory. L- let me offer a challenge. I want to do this each and every week. The challenge for this week one, it's a pretty simple challenge. I really do hope that all of us can do it. And it's so simple, it's just a key tag. A key tag. And the key tag has Jeremiah 29.7 on the back. And the thought is this that you would grab a key tag, that you would put it on your keys. That's really where a key tag goes. (laughs) That you put it on your keys, and then every time you grab your keys to head outside of your door into your city, that you would pray for your city. That you'd remember that Jesus died on the cross, yes for you, yes for me, yes for everyone in here, but for everyone in your city as well. That he loves your city. You and I, we think, you know what, the most beautiful thing in the world, it's the Grand Canyon. The most beautiful thing in the world is a view from the top of Mount Si. The most beautiful thing in the world is a waterfall in nature. And God says, you know what, the most beautiful thing in the world is people. It's the people in your city. So you would grab this key tag and that you would remember that God loves your city and he wants to use you to love your city. That you would pray for your city. That you would work for the welfare of your city because as it prospers, you prosper. 
Okay, remember, as you think about this key tag, that God is not impressed with empty religious form, but only insofar as it informs our hearts. And so what I want to do right now is I want to have you, I put the verse on your notes one more time, and I want to have us read this together as a challenge for us to begin to memorize this, for this to become a part of the way we process our faith journey. And so on the count of three, I'd love it if you would read this out loud with me. One, two, three. Work for the good of the city where I've taken you as captives and pray to the Lord for that city. When it prospers, you will also prosper. Excellent. Well, friends, I want to close our time together in prayer, and I want to do it a little bit uniquely today. Um, We're going to pray for Pastor Jake, and we're going to pray for his family, and specifically, we're going to pray for his three-year-old daughter, Maggie. And many of you know this story. Pastor Jake launched Young Adult Service about a year ago, but then in the fall, he and his wife, Davy, they received some devastating news that their daughter, Magnolia, three years old, had a brain tumor, has a brain tumor, and it's inoperable. And they're, they're doing all that they can, but the prognosis is not good. And so what we want to do is we want to pray together for her. We believe what we sang earlier today, that nothing is impossible with God. And so together we're going to come and we're going to present this request with great confidence to the God who loves Magnolia better than we ever could. Okay. Now, a couple of things that I want to say before I go into prayer. Um, the first is that we hesitate to draw an individual prayer request like this out in front of all of us because the truth is every one of your prayer requests is a- absolutely as important to Jesus. So we take all of your prayer requests seriously. When you write those down in a card, they are prayed over. There's a whole team, our elders, our pastors, we all get it. We pray over you. So please understand, that's why we don't highlight individual prayer requests more often. It's because all of your prayer requests are important. Second thing I want you to know is what, what Jake and what Davey really want is they want us to pray. And over Lake, we do trust you with this. So I I would ask that you'd be sensitive to it. Um, You wouldn't do this, but some people take this as an opportunity to come up to Jake and Davey and give them suggestions on what they should do for their daughter's treatment. Uh, you know, here's, a, here's another naturopath, or here's a, here, I've got a great doctor, here's, I've got a psychological healer, or, you know, all this. You wouldn't do that, but some people have. We don't want that. The other thing you need to know is that right now, Jake and Davey and their, their beautiful family, Paisley, Maggie, their little baby, Percy, they're kind of experiencing a honeymoon season right now because the treatment ha- has been working pretty well, and so everything seems to be uh, pretty well. And so the last thing that they would want is for one of us to come up in, in the hallway and say something that would sort of trigger the girls that, that everything might not be okay. Does this make sense? Now, nobody would do this, but let me just give you a stark example of what not to do. Do, do, do not go up and say, now, which one of you girls is dying of cancer? Do you see what I'm saying? Even if our hearts are good, sometimes our words can be incredibly hurtful. And so what Jake and Davey have requested is what we're going to do right now. We're going to just pray. And we're going to keep praying. And we're going to pray with confidence. We're going to pray with faith. And we're going to pray to the God who loves us, who loves Jake and Davey, and who loves Magnolia 
perfectly and beautifully. So why don't you do that with me right now? Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do lift Maggie up to you. We lift Jake and Davey up to you and Paisley and Percy. We lift the whole family. Lord, we know that you love them. And so, Holy Spirit, it's with great confidence that we just ask that you wrap them in your arms of love right now, that you would bring your comfort, that you would bring your care, that that you would allow them really to to love one another well and, and to enjoy the minutes and the hours and the days they have right now, and that there would be an incredible sense of joy even as it sits right next to the grief that they feel. And Jesus, right now, as, as a family, we lift up this little, this little precious girl. We ask that you would touch that tumor in her brain and that it would shrink and shrink and shrink. We pray that it would actually disappear. We pray this in faith. We pray it in confidence. We know that you can and do miracles, and so we ask this. Uh, it, it just... It, with the scripture in mind, Luke 137, nothing is impossible with God. Lord, we also recognize that you have a plan. And so we also at the same time pray according to your will. And we know that your will is love. We know that in heaven there is no cancer. And so right now we pray heaven on earth in Maggie's body right now. We pray these things knowing that you're present with us, that you hear this prayer. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.